Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Uber, Osvaldo, and Dixon Trujillo Blanco were proud of their mother. The year was 1984, and the Blanco family cocaine empire was at its prime, raking in $80 million a month. When their old family friend Jerry Gomez asked how business was going, they were happy to brag. The boys took turns explaining that they'd practically taken over for their aging mother. The operation was stronger than ever pulling in millions by the day, and the Trujillo Blanco brothers were the ones in charge. Gomez listened intently. He mentioned that he had a new business buying and selling aircraft, and it would make an easy front for money laundering. If the boys needed any help, they knew who to call. The brothers happily agreed. They told Gomez they had a job for him right away. They'd call him later and hammer out the details. As Gomez left the party, he reached up and tapped the second button on his shirt. Hidden beneath the button was a tiny microphone. It was a signal to the FBI agents waiting in a surveillance van parked down the street. Their informant had successfully infiltrated the Blanco cocaine business. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them, and how it changed the community around them. This is our final episode on Griselda Blanco, the cocaine godmother who rose to prominence in the 1970s and 80s. She killed her way to the top of Miami's cocaine scene, raking in $80 million a month at the height of her success. But she made plenty of enemies along the way. 
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Griselda Blanco peeked through the curtains of her modest home in suburban Irvine, California. It was a chilly February day, quiet, nothing to see. But she kept expecting to see a dark car pull up and idle outside, waiting to strike. It was 1984, and Griselda had more enemies than she could count. She told her Miami associates that she'd moved to California to grow the new West Coast branch of her cocaine operation. In reality, she'd fled the bloody streets of Miami out of fear and sought refuge as far away as possible. Griselda was only 41, but she'd already fallen far from her glory days. Only a year ago, she'd been the terror of Miami, ordering multiple executions every day. She'd been respected, or at least feared, by every other drug lord in the city. And then, almost overnight, everyone in Miami wanted her head on a platter. It actually wasn't as sudden as she thought. Griselda had amassed a long list of enemies over the years. Rival gang leaders, disgruntled former employees, family members of the hundreds of people she'd executed. Even her own hitmen were after her. Jaime Bravo, the nephew of Griselda's second husband, Alberto, had been stalking her around Miami for months. Jaime had worked as an enforcer for Griselda for years until he found out that she'd been the one who killed his uncle Alberto. An even more dangerous threat was Paco Sepulveda, the brother of Griselda's third husband, Dario Sepulveda. Griselda had ordered Dario's death after he kidnapped their six-year-old son and took him back to Colombia in 1983. It seemed like a reasonable solution to the custody battle at the time. But she'd forgotten that Dario's brother Paco was a hitman, one of her own hitmen at that. After Dario's murder, the entire Sepulveda family declared war on Griselda. They were just as closely connected to the Medellin cartel's leadership as Griselda was, and she lost some of her best suppliers in the split. It didn't damage business too badly. Her operation was still pulling in millions every day. Griselda moved out to California while her older three sons, who were now in their teens and 20s, took over the day-to-day -day in Miami. She wondered who, if anyone, would see her change of scenery for what it really was, a fearful retreat. Little did she know, the threats she was facing were much bigger than a damaged reputation. The DEA had been building a new case against Griselda for over a year. She was still wanted on drug charges from almost a decade before, but since she'd come back to the U.S. on a fake Venezuelan passport, the feds didn't realize at first that she was in the States again. When she started wreaking havoc across Miami in the late 70s, whispers of her name spread through the city, eventually reaching the ears of Bob Palombo. Palombo was a DEA officer who'd been involved in Operation Banshee, the 1975 investigation into Griselda's drug trafficking ring in New York. 
At the time, it was the biggest cocaine case in U.S. history. Griselda fled back to Colombia before they could arrest her, but Palombo knew she'd be back eventually. There was something almost mythical about Griselda. She was elusive, creative, powerful, ruthlessly violent, and on top of that, she was a woman. Palombo wouldn't let her be the one that got away. He made a promise to a group of sniggering co-workers that someday he'd catch the infamous cocaine godmother, and when he did, he'd kiss her. In the aftermath of the shootout at Miami's Dadeland Mall in 1979, informants swore Griselda Blanco was behind it. Palombo was reassigned from New York to Miami, and the hunt was back on. Palombo followed the trail of rumors, but because of her fake passport, there was no way to confirm that Griselda was even in the U.S. She had a habit of disguising herself, changing her clothing style, cutting and dyeing her hair, even gaining and losing weight to make herself completely unrecognizable. At one point, she walked right past Palombo while his agents were staking out a location. An agent pointed her out and said, there she is. Palombo looked closer at the woman and said, no, that's not her. For years, Palombo bided his time, arresting Miami drug dealers who were low on the food chain, hoping he'd eventually catch a big fish who could help him find Griselda. Then, in March 1984, he reeled in Jerry Gomez. Gomez, a personal friend of Griselda's, was a suave, handsome Colombian pilot and mechanic who was serving 10 years in prison for narcotics charges. He used to own a garage in Medellin, where he'd done work on the Blanco family's cars and motorcycles. He wasn't a very high-ranking officer in Griselda's operation, but the family trusted him. Palombo was determined to flip Gomez in exchange for a lighter prison sentence. Gomez didn't take much convincing, and by the late spring of 1984, their new sting operation was underway, Operation Los Niños. Palombo knew that Griselda's sons, Uber, Osvaldo, and Dixon, were involved in her business, but he didn't have enough evidence to prove it. If he wanted to get to Griselda, her family was the surest way. Jerry Gomez's first assignment was to head to a party where the Trujillo Blanco brothers would be in attendance and get as much information from them as he could. The brothers had known Gomez since they were little boys down in Colombia, so they let their guard down. The wire Gomez was wearing recorded them openly confessing to their roles in the narcotics empire. The oldest brother, 22-year-old Dixon, was an enforcer. He also represented the San Francisco branch of the family's cocaine business. Uber, 20, oversaw the distribution in Miami. And 16-year-old Osvaldo spent most of his time in Los Angeles working in distribution. Despite being the youngest, he moved the majority of the family's cocaine, an estimated 1,100 pounds per month. They told Gomez that their mother Griselda was taking a back seat. While they didn't give up her exact location, they offered Gomez something even better, a job laundering money. This was exactly what Palombo had been hoping for, a mole inside Griselda's operation. As the work got underway, Gomez was laundering upwards of $40,000 at a time for the Blanco family, passing along information and evidence to the DEA all the while. 
Palombo already had more than enough evidence to nail all three of Griselda's sons, but if he acted on it now, Griselda would go into hiding for good. He waited, hoping someone would give Gomez a tip about Griselda's whereabouts. After a few weeks in May 1984, the unbelievable happened. Gomez received a call from Griselda herself. She asked him to pick up $40,000 from an associate in Miami, then fly out to Los Angeles and pick up another half a million dollars from her personally. It was almost too good to be true. On May 30th, 1984, Gomez, Palombo, and a team of DEA agents boarded a flight to LA to catch the elusive cocaine godmother. The agents stationed themselves around the lobby of the Marriott Hotel in Newport Beach. Palombo kept his eyes trained on Gomez as they waited for Griselda. And then they saw her. Griselda walked in, her dimpled face and cleft chin unmistakable under her wig, fancy dress, and cape. She was close enough that Palombo could have reached out and touched her, but their orders were to observe and gather evidence only. The exchange went smoothly. Griselda instructed Gomez to move the money into her offshore accounts in Panama. This was a bigger sum of money than Gomez had ever been entrusted with, and if he did well, Palombo hoped she'd give him even more responsibilities. When they left the hotel, everything seemed to be falling into place. The next time Gomez met with Griselda, Palombo told him to ask her for drugs. This would be rock-solid, indisputable evidence that Griselda was involved in drug trafficking. Enough evidence to close the case before her trial even began. Palombo coached Gomez on how to make the request without sounding suspicious. He told him, say something to the effect that you're having a party and you need a couple of people taken care of. That's exactly what Gomez did, and Griselda told him that was no problem. She scribbled down the pager number for her dear friend Jorge Rivi Ayala. There was a bit of a misunderstanding about what taken care of meant. Rivi was a hitman, not a dealer. When Gomez asked for the drugs, Rivi just stared at him and said, What are you talking about? When Rivi told Griselda about the meeting, she immediately guessed that Gomez was working as an informant. She stopped answering his calls and the DEA's case hit a wall. Then came the worst news. In October 1984, Palombo learned that Griselda had gone home to Colombia for the holidays, and she was so suspicious of Gomez, she might not be coming back. She was out of reach once again. Up next, we'll explore how Griselda was finally captured by the DEA. Now back to the story. By the winter of 1984, the DEA's trail on Griselda Blanco had gone cold. She'd gone back to Colombia for the holidays, and informants suggested the vacation might be permanent. Extradition between the U.S. and Colombia was legal at the time, but it was a sensitive subject, and the DEA couldn't be sure Colombia would allow Griselda to be extradited. If Colombia refused, and word about the new charges got to Griselda, she'd definitely never come back to the U.S. With Griselda in the wind, Bob Palombo and his team in California were called back to Miami. 
the DEA considered putting the case to rest once and for all. But Palombo wasn't ready to give up. In January 1985, Palombo received a tip from Jerry Gomez that Griselda was back in the U.S. He didn't know where she was, but he'd heard there was a safe house full of Colombian drug traffickers in Newport Beach, California, just a few blocks from the hotel where Gomez had first met Griselda. Palombo badgered his supervisors to reopen the investigation into Griselda, and by January 13th, he and his partner Dan Moritz were given permission to fly back to California. Palombo and Moritz surveyed the safe house for three days before they gathered enough evidence to bust the drug dealers who rented it. While searching the house, they found cocaine, cash, and electric bills for another address in Irvine, California, the same city where Griselda Blanco had last called from. Palombo and Moritz began watching the second house in mid-February 1985. On February 17th, they saw her on the front porch, 42-year-old Griselda Blanco holding hands with her youngest son, six-year-old Michael Corleone. Griselda gave Michael a kiss on the cheek and sent him down the sidewalk with a nanny. She went back inside and watched them from the front window. As soon as the child and nanny were out of sight, Palombo called for backup. It took 20 minutes for the backup team to arrive. Palombo, Moritz, and six more DEA agents surrounded the suburban home and got ready to strike. Inside, Griselda left her anxious perch by the front window and climbed up the stairs to her bedroom. She pulled her Bible out of the drawer and sat down on the bed to read. The passages calmed her when she was feeling too anxious. Meanwhile, Palombo and his team approached the house. Three agents surrounded the front door, and three went around back. Palombo went right up to the front door and knocked hard. A bewildered elderly woman answered. Palombo guessed it was Griselda's mother, but he never asked. As his agents cased the first floor, he rushed up the stairs and busted open the first door he saw. There was Griselda sitting upright in bed reading her Bible. She was stunned into silence. Palombo said, Hola, Griselda. After 11 years, he'd finally caught the cocaine godmother. As the agents removed the Bible from her lap and cuffed her hands behind her back, Palombo leaned in and planted a wet kiss on Griselda's cheek. Griselda Blanco was escorted to the squad car outside. She was on her way to jail before her son came home from his walk. Griselda was taken back to New York, where she was still facing drug trafficking charges from back in 1974. She was held without bail at the Metropolitan Correctional Center for a few months until her trial began in June of 1985. The New York District Attorney wanted to nail her on murder charges, but he was finding it tough to make anything stick. Rumors abounded about the hundreds of executions Griselda had ordered, but no witnesses were willing to testify against her. Meanwhile, Palombo still had to capture Griselda's sons. He planned to find them and prosecute them on the information Jerry Gomez had collected, but finding them was the difficult part. One Blanco son proved to be an easy catch. 
17-year-old Osvaldo was the first to be arrested just weeks after Griselda's trial began in June 1985. He was picked up on counterfeiting and weapons charges in California. But with one brother behind bars, the other two were more difficult to catch. They went into hiding and weren't seen or heard from for months. Eventually, Palombo enlisted the help of a New York DEA agent named Mary Cooper, who suggested they check Griselda's visitor's log in jail. There was only one regular visitor, a woman named Gloria. Gloria was easy to track down, and once the agents got a hold of her phone records, they found that she made long-distance calls to the same number in California every time there was a major event in Griselda's trial. They traced the number and surveilled the house where the calls were coming from. Soon enough, they saw a BMW pull up to the house. An unidentified young woman was driving, and 21-year-old Uber Trujillo Blanco was sitting in the back seat, talking on a cell phone. As soon as the car parked, Palombo walked right up to the passenger's side and cuffed Uber before he realized what was happening. He didn't resist. He just asked if he could call his lawyer. Palombo allowed it. Since Uber was handcuffed, the young woman who was driving took his phone, dialed the number, and walked a few yards away. A few minutes later, she came back and told Uber that she couldn't reach his lawyer. So she called his older brother Dixon instead. Palombo couldn't believe it. He was going to nail the last two Trujillo Blanco brothers at the same time. Dixon rolled up to the house half an hour later and was arrested on the spot. The Blanco family members were all tried separately. In 1985, Griselda was sentenced to 15 years for conspiracy to import and distribute cocaine. Palombo was furious. He thought she should have received at least 35. Her three sons were each sentenced to 10 years for drug trafficking. But this wasn't the end for Griselda Blanco. Her lawyer had finagled her a deal to stay in a low-security federal prison outside of Oakland, California. She was able to pay off the guards to allow her to live in comfort for the next 15 years. She was allowed contraband in her cell, her visitors weren't subjected to searches, and she was given unlimited phone calls. She easily kept running her drug business from the inside. Griselda's imprisonment made the nightly news in Oakland, and it caught the attention of a teenage crack dealer named Charles Cosby. As he listened to the news anchor announce the end of the cocaine queen, he was stunned. His knowledge of the drug world was confined to what he saw on the streets. He couldn't believe the scope of the empire Griselda had built, the power she'd earned, all by selling cocaine. From that moment on, Griselda Blanco was Cosby's role model. Six years later, in 1991, Cosby made friends with a woman who'd previously worked as a drug runner for Griselda. He jumped at the opportunity and asked her for an introduction. Cosby wasn't allowed to visit Griselda in prison since he was on probation for automatic weapons charges, but he wrote her a heartfelt letter. Their mutual friend vouched for him, so Griselda wrote back. What followed was months of letters and phone calls where they shared everything about their lives their ambitions, their families, their fears. 
Eventually, the letters took a romantic turn, despite their age difference. Cosby was 22 years old to Griselda's 50. In 1992, Cosby was finally cleared to visit Griselda in prison. After nearly a year, the pair came face to face for the first time. Griselda came into the visitation room wearing a bright red suit and matching pumps. Cosby recalled, when the officers brought her in, everything stopped. She commanded the attention of the entire room. She was beautiful. Griselda immediately embraced him and kissed him passionately. Then they sat down to talk. In his letters, Cosby had confessed that his small-time drug dealing operation wasn't going so well. Griselda asked him how much cocaine he would need to sell to live comfortably. He nervously blurted out, 50 keys. Three days later, Cosby's doorbell rang. There was a visitor bearing two cardboard boxes, which he explained were deliveries from the godmother. Cosby opened them and found 50 kilograms of cocaine, just as he'd requested. He was now a distributor for his childhood hero, Griselda Blanco. Griselda passed on instructions for how to distribute the product. She would teach Cosby to be a proper drug dealer of her own mold, while making sure he didn't make her same mistakes. Within a month, Cosby was making millions. After his initial success, Griselda felt comfortable entrusting him with more important duties. He became her point person on the outside, flying around the country and making arrangements with distributors on Griselda's behalf. When he wasn't working, he visited Griselda in prison. They paid the guards $1,500 to look the other way while they had sex in a multifunction room. Charles even became close with Griselda's sons, especially Michael Corleone, who was just turning 13. Griselda's time in prison was flying by. Her business was still booming, and she had a new love she fully trusted. She had almost forgotten just how cruel the drug world could be on the outside, the betrayals, the cheating, the lying. Unfortunately, Griselda was about to remember it all at once. As her 15-year sentence was winding to a close, prosecutors were filing new charges against her, murder charges that would put her away for life. Up next, we'll explore the betrayals that finally brought Griselda's empire crumbling down. Now back to the story. In 1992, Uber, Dixon, and Osvaldo Trujillo Blanco were released from prison after serving only seven years each. Their 51-year-old mother Griselda was only a few years away from walking out of prison herself. If the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office wanted to lock her up for good, they had to do it fast. Prosecutors hadn't been able to bring any murder charges against Griselda, despite the hundreds of executions she'd ordered, because no one was willing to testify against her. But in 1994, they managed to enlist the help of Jorge Rivi Ayala, Griselda's best hitman. Rivi agreed to help prosecute Griselda on multiple murder charges, in exchange for leniency on his own multiple murder charges. He knew enough about Griselda to bury her 10 times over. Prosecutors were aiming for the death penalty. When Griselda heard the news, she had a nervous breakdown. 
Her boyfriend Charles Cosby promised to fight the charges in court on her behalf with the best lawyers his millions could buy. But Griselda knew the truth. There was only one way she was getting out of this. At one of their visits in 1995, Griselda reached into her bra and handed Cosby a crumpled piece of paper. He read it silently, JFK 5MNY. He asked her for clarification, but she told him he didn't need to know the details. She just wanted him to pass it on to her son, Dixon. Eventually, Griselda confessed that she was plotting to kidnap former President John F. Kennedy's son, JFK Jr., affectionately known as John John. She planned to pay kidnappers $5 million to seize John John and then hold him hostage until she was released from prison. Cosby tried to explain to her why the plan would never work, but all Griselda did was accuse him of being a traitor. Cosby quit arguing and gave the note to Dixon as he was told. If he thought that would be the end of his involvement, he was wrong. Later in 1995, he reluctantly agreed to make the journey from California to New York to oversee the kidnapping plot. Four Colombian kidnappers flew into New York and met him at a safe house upstate. He gave them the cash and several pistols and pointed them towards JFK Jr.'s Tribeca apartment. The kidnappers cased the apartment for days before they even laid eyes on the target, but finally they spotted him walking his dog in a nearby park. They surrounded the park and closed in, prepared to capture John John. Then an NYPD car passed by. One single police car was all it took to foil the plot. Tensions were already running high and the kidnappers scattered never to return to try again. Griselda was furious, and she was prepared to take all of her anger out on Cosby. But unfortunately for Griselda, Cosby wasn't around. The kidnapping snafu had been too close a call for him, and as much as he loved Griselda, he didn't want to stick around to watch her unravel. Hoping to spare himself of any future blame for Griselda's many crimes, he agreed to meet with Miami prosecutors in late spring 1995. Cosby told the prosecutors everything he knew about Griselda's cocaine operation, which she'd been running the entire time she was in prison. They were mostly uninterested in this, since they wanted to prosecute Griselda for murder, not drug trafficking. But they decided to keep Cosby on the witness list to testify to her violent streak and unstable mental health. With both Cosby and Reavy on their side, prosecutors had more than enough to indict Griselda for three murder charges in June 1995. Griselda's world was crashing down. The state attorney's office was calling for the death penalty. She was so close to walking free, but now she was facing the electric chair. But then a miracle happened. Cosby and Reavy were both discovered to be having affairs with a secretary at the state attorney's office. The credibility of the two key witnesses in Griselda's case was called into question. When questioned, the secretary said she'd been ordered to carry on affairs with the witnesses by the prosecutor in Griselda's case. The prosecutor vehemently denied this. Whatever happened, the two star witnesses' credibility tanked 
And with the state attorney's office under investigation, the case against Griselda was looking incredibly weak. The new prosecutor offered Griselda a plea deal, 20 years total for her old charges and three new second-degree murder charges. Griselda agreed. After all, she had already served 10 years. What were 10 more? The remaining 10 years of Griselda's sentence were served in relative peace. In 2002, 59-year-old Griselda suffered a heart attack while in prison. She took it as confirmation that it was time for her to step away from crime, or the stress would cost her what was left of her life. Griselda was released in 2004 at 61 years old. She was deported back to Colombia immediately and went on to live in relative anonymity. She wanted to distance herself from the drug trade now that she was back in Medellin, a place that had changed dramatically since the death of Pablo Escobar back in 1993. Just as Miami was beginning to heal from the old wounds Griselda afflicted in the 80s, Medellin was cleaning up after the Medellin cartel fell from grace. There was still crime in the poor ghettos, but the rest of the city flourished due to tourism. (laughs) Griselda had some family and friends who she stayed with, since all of her assets from her drug dealing days were frozen. All except for her properties. Rather than live in any of the houses and apartments she owned in Medellin, she rented them out, eventually earning enough income to buy her own place in the wealthy El Poblado district. Griselda's youngest son, Michael Corleone, had moved back to Colombia while she was in prison. He'd just turned 26 and was starting a family of his own. He got married in 2005 and was soon expecting his first son. Despite the ups and downs of her adult life, Griselda frequently visited Barrio Trinidad, the neighborhood where she had grown up. Not wanting to attract unwanted attention to herself, she went by a fake name when she spoke to the neighbors, Doña Gris. Griselda lived a peaceful, quiet, anonymous life for a couple years until her life story blew up on televisions everywhere. It started with news articles and culminated in a documentary called Cocaine Cowboys in 2006, detailing her insane life at the top of Miami's cocaine industry. Rivi Ayala gave extensive interviews for the film. The documentary was such a hit, they made a sequel in 2008 called Cocaine Cowboys 2, Hustlin' with the Godmother. This one starred both Rivi and Charles Cosby. With her face plastered across newspapers, TV, and the internet, Griselda was starting to get recognized as she meandered around Medellin. And in 2012, she was recognized by the wrong group of people. It was Labor Day weekend. Griselda and her daughter-in-law, her son Michael's wife, were taking a trip to the local butcher. They were planning a barbecue. So Griselda was stocking up on $150 worth of meat. She paid no mind when two men on a motorcycle stopped outside. They were both wearing dark helmets that covered their entire faces. One of the men idled on the motorcycle while the other got off and walked toward the butcher shop. The jingle of the bell on the door signaled his arrival, followed by two loud gunshots. One to Griselda's shoulder and the other to her head. He calmly walked outside, got on the motorcycle, and drove off. 
Griselda's daughter-in-law screamed for help, but the deed was done. At 69 years old, Griselda Blanco was dead. To this day, no one knows who killed her, whether it was an old rival, the family of an old victim, or someone else. Whoever it was had a sense of irony, killing the godmother with the same execution method she'd invented three decades prior. Griselda was laid to rest in the same Medellin cemetery as Pablo Escobar, her protege and her rival. Her sons Dixon and Michael Corleone are still alive, but their whereabouts are unknown. Charles Cosby, Griselda's last lover, profited off his relations with her through film appearances and book deals. Rivi Ayala died in prison in 2016 while serving three consecutive life sentences. The crime wave that plagued Miami started to heal after the deaths or arrests of the major players in the cocaine cowboy wars. In 1981, the Miami metropolitan area had a higher murder rate than any other city in the U.S., with 621 homicides in that year alone. By 2015, Miami had fallen to 17th place with only 75 murders. Officials noted Griselda Blanco's arrest in 1985 as the turning point where the murder rate started to drop. But the city's reputation is still more powder white than sterling. In 2016, a study from the financial news site 24-7 Wall Street ranked Miami as the worst city in the U.S. to live in based on crime, poverty, income inequality, and housing costs. Are drug lords like Griselda Blanco entirely to blame for the havoc wreaked in Miami? Many would argue yes. The Dadeland Mall shooting in 1979 set a dangerous precedent. Once Griselda Blanco's hitmen sprayed bullets into a crowd of innocent bystanders in broad daylight without ever being arrested, other drug traffickers started believing they could do the same thing. Others would argue that it was the government's job to control the streets. The federal government should have directed more resources and attention to Miami right after the Dadeland Mall shooting and quelled the takeover by Colombian drug traffickers before it was too late. However, when the DEA did start cracking down in Miami, it only pushed the problem elsewhere. Around the time of Griselda's arrest in 1985, the Medellin cartel, along with Colombia's other major drug operation, the Cali Cartel, had already started to move their cocaine through Mexico and across the border. As counterintuitive as it sounds, if the cartels had been allowed to keep running their drugs through Miami in peace, the violence on the drug war's Mexican front might have been entirely avoided. And here's where we get to the heart of Griselda Blanco's story. She pioneered Colombia's cocaine trade, but it didn't end with her. The international drug network she helped create became a beast unto itself, strong enough to outlast any queenpin or kingpin. After Griselda was first driven out of New York by Operation Banshee in 1975, her protege Pablo Escobar took her place at the top of the cocaine world. After Escobar died in 1993, the rival Cali Cartel became Colombia's most powerful drug traffickers. The Cali Cartel collapsed just a few years later, 
and Colombia's drug running fell to a network of right-wing paramilitary groups who control most of the country's drug trafficking to this day. To drug dealers like Charles Cosby, as well as law enforcement agents like Bob Palombo, Griselda Blanco took on a mythical status as an embodiment of the cocaine trade in all its bloody glory. But for all her power and her violence, in the end, she was replaceable, just one cog in the machine she helped create. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Margot Perkins and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.